Blog Talk Radio. here at Energy Awareness Radio, and the founder and CEO of Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, 
a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a board-certified integrated holistic health energy and sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. Energy Awareness Radio is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. Audible.com has more than 425,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products to choose from, so you can listen whenever and wherever you want. Just download the title you prefer, free of charge, and start listening when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audible.trial.com slash energyawareness. That's audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. Okay, listeners, this past year, our entire planet has experienced so much loss. And with that, there has been and continues to be tremendous grief. And for far too long, we have treated grief as a problem that needs to be solved. But it's really not a problem, and it doesn't need to be solved. Rather, it is a process with no time frame and no right or wrong way in which we each individually or even together as a collective whole face our losses and begin to heal. My guest, Claire B. Willis, is a clinical social worker who has worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. A co-founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together, Claire has led bereavement, end-of-life, support, and therapeutic writing groups. She has co-taught spiritual resources for healing the mind, body, and soul at Andover Newton Theological School, and she maintains a private practice in Massachusetts, my old stomping ground. As a lay Buddhist chaplain, she focuses on contemplative practices for end-of-life care. And for the past five years, she's been a student of Koshin Paley Ellison, a founding teacher at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. She is the author of Lasting Words, A Guide to Finding Meaning Toward the Close of Life, and she is the co-author with Marnie Crawford Samuelson of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace, which is our topic for discussion. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you for taking time to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? Uh, gee, thank you so much for having me. I am being good. <laughs> I can't, I can't say I have any complaints right now. I feel very fortunate at my age to be healthy and thriving. And anybody on the planet right now should feel the same way. You know, if you're healthy and thriving, you're doing better than many people. So there you go. I know that. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I'm very yeah. grateful. Believe me. Yes, I'm sure. You know, first let me say I don't think that there really is anyone on the planet who hasn't suffered some type of loss this past year, whether it's the loss of a loved one's life the loss of a job, a business, or even as simple as the loss of your daily routine in life and our ability to freely socialize. It is loss, and these losses, they've been life-changing in both small and extremely devastating ways. And having said that, your book, Opening to Grief, which has a copyright date of 2020, A Year of Immense Loss. Did you feel the need to write this book because of COVID and all that it brought? Or was oh. it in the work prior to your really being aware of COVID and the horrors that were to come? 
Oh, it's so funny that you asked that question because we wrote the book long before COVID, and it was supposed to come out this spring. And when COVID hit a year ago, the publisher said, we want this book immediately. So we wrote Mm. this book more out of uh, what emanated from my work, which was um, mostly people who were dying from cancer um, and other kinds of losses. Um, it's it's interesting that you talk about the fact that we've all experienced loss. I think maximally we've we've lost life as we've known it. That, that that there's some way we can't unknow what we know now. And David Brooks has had a great article that came out in April 2020, at, right at the beginning of COVID, and he wrote to his readers saying. Um, how are you all faring? And in three days, he got 5,000 replies. And his summation mm. comment was, um, we're just experiencing a river of woe. There's a river of grief in our culture. And I, I love the, the metaphor of river because water goes everywhere. And COVID has touched everybody in some way or another. And I think sometimes people may not experience what they've experienced as grief, but it has touched everybody's lives. Everybody has suffered some loss from this pandemic sure. of fear and grief and, and, and of a disease. Sure. I mean, some of it, by comparison, some of the things are seemingly small, but, but they're really not. I mean, one of the losses is the loss of the self, the way we lived prior to lockdowns and wearing masks to stay safe. And, and wherever there's loss, there's grief, which is, right. in this case compounded by fear of how to live fully when we can't go anywhere or be with anyone we want to be with. So we're grieving all of this at the same time, along with any other devastating losses that might come up. But even just hearing the daily updates on the news, it it would hit you hard. You couldn't help but grieve for others. It was just too much. And the symptoms aren't just sorrow, as people think. The list of symptoms are all-encompassing, fear being among them, along with anger and anxiety and isolation, disorientation, hopelessness, depression. There's so many things. I mean, mental health issues have gone up extremely high in the past year and so many more ways in which we as humans respond to loss. You know, coupled with, look at the violence and the destruction, the brutality that we've witnessed on TV and the weather patterns and everything like that. You know, will we ever be where we were and able to live? And I know that we're coming out of it now, but still all of that, even though it may not be a direct hit to us as individuals, is still loss on top of loss on top of loss. Is it not? You know? Oh, it's what I call a pileup. Oh, yeah. But, you know, when you think about some of these, um, some of these losses, like I'm thinking about the threat of loss to our democracy. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. how racism and how systemic racism has been exposed, that there's grief connected with that, the ways in which we're finally beginning to see how we've been complicit with that. And it's, 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 it's every aspect of our life if we're willing to experience it and let our hearts break open. The environmental crisis is not going to go away fast. I mean, mm. and, and that's what actually caused COVID. So it's, our problems aren't going away, but our sociability is opening up. And I hope it stays open. You mentioned something that I want to just emphasize to you, which I think is really important, that grief, the word grief 
is an umbrella word for so many feelings. And one of the problems mm-hmm. that happens often in families is that people are grieving differently. And so sometimes people perceive other members of the family as not grieving because their grief doesn't express itself the way another person's does. And we tend to think of grief as sorrow and sadness and despair. But as you said, it's angry, anger, it's irritation, it's loneliness, it's anxiety. And anger is a very common expression of fear, uh, I mean of grief. It's impatience and irritability are also, and I think, I want to just say this because I think it's important for listeners, is that it's much easier to be angry about a loss because there's a sense of agency and strength in feeling angry rather than to feel the helplessness and the vulnerability of sorrow when you've lost something or someone you love. It's easier to be confrontive and combative about it, but eventually it's going to catch up with you if you don't reach under the anger into the sorrow and and tap into the real uh, content of the loss. Yeah, and I think when most people think about grief, they really do turn to the work of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who developed the five stages of grieving. Right. Which, and that has been like the, I don't know, the proper way to grieve, I'll say, and has been used by psychologists and psychiatrists for decades to help, in quotes, patients who go through the grieving process so they know where they are and what the next stage is. And when they get to number five, bam, you're done. But I don't really like that. But then I remember it was written more than 50 years ago, and we've come a long way since then. But still, that work has become quite popular and is still believed as the method to follow. And I just don't think you can tell anybody what, how long to grieve, how to grieve, what to grieve, unless it gets to a point where it's consistently in their mindset for more than, let's say, more than a year or two years. Then they need to seek help from someone who can really give them the help they need to process because they're obviously not processing. But I don't think her work, as good as it was at that point in time, really applies today. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work was written to apply to the stages people who are dying go through. It was never intended to be the stages, the linear stages in a straight line of people who are grieving. What's happened is it's gotten overlaid on people who are grieving, and it's got, it has so saturated our culture that people often compare themselves to that model, and then they come mm-hmm. up short because they'll say, like, here's an, something someone will say to me, I, I thought I was doing so well. And then I was walking down the aisle of a supermarket, and I saw a can of tuna fish, and I just lost it because my husband loved tuna fish, and I can't bear to see tuna fish in the aisle. And I I feel like I've just regressed in my grief. And one of the Mm. things I say to people is you didn't regress. You actually didn't lose it. You got it. You got a moment of feeling the full impact of your loss. And Stephen Levine says something really beautiful. He says, looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look, we turn away. We can't stare at death. We can't stare at loss because we'll burn our eyes. So it Grief comes in waves, and that that upsurge of grief is actually called in the literature, the acronym is STUG, Sudden Temporary Upsurge of Grief. It happens to everybody. It usually lasts no longer than 24 hours. There's nothing to do about it but just to know it's completely normal. So I wanted to say one more thing about Kubler-Ross's work. It, it, inevitably, people will touch into some of those stages Um, as part of their grief work. They may not either, but 
they may. So it's not that those stages don't apply, but they don't apply in any linear way. And they've, people have really hurt themselves and shamed themselves with those stages by misinterpreting them and, and applying them to their own process. So I, I want to just emphasize that for people that may be feeling that. Yeah, it's really a shame because sometimes when we're, something is given to us as a pure belief and something that, you, well, this is the way it is and you have to do that and right. now you're not quote-unquote normal because you're not following these quote-unquote rules, you know, there really are any, no rules when it comes to this. There aren't any at all. And, and that's sad that people, you know, have – you would think after 50 years would, would be beyond that, but – but we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. I hear it a lot in my bereavement groups. I don't think I I thought I thought I was doing well, but I don't think I am. I've I've fallen yeah. behind, you know. And it's it's that very thing that actually caused me to write the book because there's as many different expressions of grief as there are people who grieve. No two people grieve the same way, and I think the trick is to find your own way through your loss. And hopefully the chapters in my book will be resources or sources of comfort to help people be with their grief so that their grief can turn from being a searing pain to an ache they learn to live with and then they integrate into their life. Yeah, I was just going to say grief can truly hurt, and I do mean physical pain. I felt that pain, and for me, the best way to deal with it is to, to go with it, to feel into it, if you will. I've done that by, you know, getting outside, walking in nature, sitting by water, or practicing yoga, meditation, and of course, crying my eyes out. But once I did that enough, the crying along with the pain was less and less. But still, to this day, even when I decorate for Christmas, those ornaments that represent those lives, I still get very teary-eyed. But somehow, those are no longer tears of sorrow. But rather, I find them to be tears of gratitude. I'm grateful for what those lives brought to my life. And that I was blessed to have them in my life. And, and while they are tears, it's not the same as sorrowful tears. I miss them, absolutely. But it's somehow softer on both, I'll say, my heart and soul because it, it stirs up the happy memories I hold. Whenever that occurs, whatever the reminder, I know in those moments, I believe, that the spirit of those beings are right there with mm-hmm. me. I firmly believe that. And for me, it's, it's visceral, and those tools work for me. So how do you help people with the literal pain and hurt that comes well, with grief that's uh, so let, let me let me just say two things first um you're, what you're just saying is reminding me of some words that i found after the book was published which i think are some of the most beautiful words i've read about grief and and it, it's to the point you're speaking these are words by an author named jamie anderson grief i have learned is really just love All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. And I love that because it's like it's really saying don't rush through grief. Don't push it away. Allow yourself to express the love that has no place to go. But when you're talking about these ornaments, um, grief and gratitude are so closely they're, they're, they're opposite sides of one hand. One's the palm and one's the top of the hand. And, for instance, I heard somebody in my bereavement group say the other night, I love my husband and I feel so, and I miss him, and I feel so grateful to have had the opportunity to love like that. 
So mm. she can say that with tears, and then she can say it with joy. And I love that because they really do go together, grief and gratitude. Yeah, I think they but do. But in terms I mean, of the even, physical, even, uh, I was going to say in terms of the physical no. parts of grief, there's no question that grief has a real physical component, it has a psychological component, it has a cognitive component, and there's a lot that we lose as we're grieving, and it can be a physical pain in the body. There's no question about it. And breath can help with that, and meditation can mm. help with that, and mindfulness practices can help with that. Yeah, because we have to try to remember, as, and, and maybe it's not up to us to really remember. Maybe it's up to us to have people around us who love us enough to, to support us and say, you know, your person wouldn't want you to be like this all the time. They would want you to be living life because life is meant to be lived. And you're not forgetting about the person. You're not disregarding them. You're not detaching. I mean, I've had people tell me I'm detached. And I'm like, look, you know, it's not a case of being detached. It's a case of keeping that person in your heart, a special place within your heart, and knowing that you are fortunate enough to get to move on and go on and, and carry their their life with you and, and help bring legacy, what yeah. they were doing into it. Well, I often will say to somebody, what would your loved one want from, from you right now? Mm-hmm. What, what advice would they give you? And that's, and to that point, there's, there's a phenomenon, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called continuing bonds or remembering mm-hmm. conversations, which I have in my book. And it's, it's a way I often will say to people in my bereavement groups, how many of you are talking to the people who have died that you loved? I don't say, is anybody? I, I assume it's normal, and I say, how many of you no. are? And that way, the secrets of doing that, which everybody's doing, emerge. And we have to prevail upon the voice of the people who have gone before us and try to bring their voices in with us, because the, death, the end of a life doesn't end a relationship. The relationships with these people right. go on. And how can we use it in a way that's helpful to our healing? I mean, that's really, that's the question. How do we keep the loss in a, in a healing way with us? How do we keep that love going? What's the legacy that that person has imbued to us um, to go on? And I'm sure I'm not alone. I, I do that. When my father passed away. <laughs> I mean, that's not funny. When my father passed away. You know, it was probably a couple of months later. I was doing something in the basement. I can't remember what. And he was a cabinet maker. And I couldn't get something to fit together. And I'm like, oh, come on, Daddy. You know, can you just help me? What are you doing on the other side anyway? And in two seconds' time, it worked. And I was like, oh, thank you. And so I, I call on the people who know more than I do about whatever it is that I'm doing or can help me with it who have passed because I know, you know, if I, if I can't get something mechanical done, I call on him. If I can't get something done when it comes to sewing, I call on someone I know who, who knew how to sew really well and say, why am I not getting this? There are so many things I call upon, and inevitably I get the help I need. I don't know whether it's just something that just comes to me or they're really here. I'd like to think that they're really here. I, I, I really would. I think that if you put on a special pair of glasses, like when you go to the movies to see those 3D movies, if you put on glasses that showed you how populated the world was, there's spirit everywhere. We are so overly populated, it isn't even funny with all the people who have passed before us. But, you know, I feel like you can feel their presence and 
and they will help you if you ask for it. It works for me. I mean, do other people feel that way, or am I just like looming? Yes, people. <laughs> well, people have varying experiences of this. There are people that feel that they are in touch with those they loved who died. They see signs. One of the signs I hear a lot is birds, cardinals, and bluebirds yep. often cardinals. appear. Yep. Yeah. Um, there was a woman. In, there's a woman in one of my groups whose husband was an avid gardener. And she had some plant that only blooms every seven years, and it bloomed right after he died. And she really felt it was a visitation from her partner. You know, there are things that happen that are beyond coincidence that are really, I find, unexplainable. And I don't want to ever dismiss someone's experience of making meaning from something that brings them healing, you know, because we're all going to find different ways to make meaning. I mean, that's what religion is about in some ways. It's about making meaning out of what is incomprehensible, you know, and each tradition does it differently. Yeah. I mean, I see a cardinal here. I see a a, a red cardinal here, and I think it's my father. And then one day I saw a red cardinal with its mate. And I was like, oh, you're both here. Okay. I'm like, wow, I can't believe you're still together on the other side. All right. You know (laughs) I was shocked. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That was my own little thing. But I have a friend who, her husband passed away, and she said, he used to plant these tiger lilies. She says, I hate tiger lilies. I hate them. She says, in every spring, these damn tiger lilies bloom. And I want to just yank them up, but I feel like I can't because I think he's trying to get through and tell me something. She says, and sometimes something comes up in the house, and I have to say, Gary, why are you not helping me? And she says, and then there's a solution. Within like half an hour, I get a solution. I'm like, oh, okay, you are helping me. She says, so I really can't pull out those tiger lilies, can I? I said, you can do whatever you want, but, you know, you've got you to gotta feel through this yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of things um, appear from nature as signs to people. And then there's people who don't see the signs and then feel badly that their loved one isn't visiting. And I say, well, you know, maybe they haven't come yet, or maybe they've come in ways you didn't expect. I mean, it, mm. we can't answer unequivocally for these things, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you just can't, you know, you, know, you, just, you absolutely can't, you know. Um, yeah. But I think throughout, throughout, particularly throughout this pandemic, which is why I asked about, you know, if the book came out specifically for that, it sounds like you were, you were called to do so, <laughs> you know. People have been talking about the losses they experienced years, even decades ago. So I'm wondering if you think the daily news or the COVID updates coupled with the other other issues of brutality and violence that we hear about are triggering memories of simpler times and those memories would probably include those that we have lost. Why do you why do you well, think that's, the memories that's are, are an interesting question you're posing. I think that co what one of the if if there's a silver lining and I say that in quotes to COVID, is yep. that the whole concept of grief has come into the mainstream media. We have a president who talked about how important it is to remember in, 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 so that we can heal. He lit those candles for each for a thousand lives. And, you know, there was a public expression of grief and mourning. And that's one of the things COVID has done. It has, we've seen articles in the New York Times and the Atlantic. We hear talk shows on NPR. It's in the mainstream conversation now. And that's been a really a benefit of COVID. The other thing that it's done is it has resurrected for people unattended, unattended losses from earlier on in their life. So 
many people don't grieve losses for many reasons. They may have a judgment about how it should look. They may not have had the time and the, the privilege and the the, the um the, the downtime to grieve, you know, if they were busy just coping and holding a family together. And I think when COVID came and brought so much loss into our lives, it tore open all the losses in our past that we hadn't grieved. And and I think that's one of the reasons people have been more attuned to their losses. Yeah, I think I think you're right because it has come up an awful lot. I mean, I've heard it. I have done pediatric hospice work, so I don't hear from the children at all. But I haven't I haven't done that since COVID started. And but I have gotten calls from people, adults too, and and I work with them over the phone or through a Zoom-like site for healthcare professionals. And um, you know, they're they're experiencing things on every level, regardless of whether it has to do with their children or or loss of a job right. or having to, right. having to take time off from the job to be with the children. It's all this one web of, of grief that they're going through, and it's very, very yeah. difficult, you know. Uh, and I just you know, think I it's wanna, more prevalent can I, now. Can, yeah, I, go ahead. Can, I, can I read you just a very short poem that, yes. um, that I, I read when I'm giving a talk? Because it's to this point of of – Grief returning that we don't grieve. And I love this little poem. It's very short. It's called Naming, and it's by Carol Lynn Knight. Naming. If I name this grief, define it without guilt and redemption, call it drowning, desolation, call it fire and stone, then I am bound to care for it like a stray cat I name that demands I feed him. He comes and goes, sometimes disappears for days, and then returns, insisting that I remember. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I mean about ungrieved griefs will return. And so yeah. how do we tend to these griefs that COVID has brought both on a macro level in the culture, but also on our, in our individual lives? And I think the the first and, chapter in our book, I love starts. We start. We start. We gave a lot of thought to how we were going to write the first chapter because the first chapter seemed important. And we decided to start with the practice of kindness because we knew mm-hmm. that people were coming to the grief process with ideas about what grief should look like, whatever they were taught about grief. Many people weren't allowed to go to funerals as children. You know, I mean, we, we hear true. those stories yeah. a lot. And so we have to start by meeting ourselves with kindness wherever we are in that grief process. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, I mean, science has proven this over and over again, that's vital to our health and in the grieving process is self-care. But it's still looked at by many as a form of selfishness. It's not self-care and and kindness to ourselves is particularly important when we're we're going through life changes or challenges, you know, I, I think that that's an important piece that people feel guilty about, I guess I'll say, uh, you know, yes, that I think that they can't right. possibly do anything. Yeah. I can't do any self-care for myself. I have to take care of this person who's dying or somebody passed away. And so therefore it's almost like they have to punish themselves. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Wow. I don't know. I think um, one of the other, one thing I, or, yes, go ahead. 
Go ahead. I was going to say somehow care or it becomes a betrayal of of the one who passed. Yes. Yep. You know, you can't and, have too you know, good a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you, you would definitely be betraying that person because they're here and you're not, you know, uh, they're not part of it and they should be here. And yeah, it's not right. That's not the case. But even the self-care part where it's, you know, if you took care of yourself and held your normal daily routine as best you could, people think that's almost selfish that, well, you know, their husband or their wife or their parents or sibling or somebody passed away and three days later they went and got a massage or a week later they went and got a manicure and a pedicure. You know what? You know, these are not luxuries. This is self-care for this person. Or they went, they started going back to yoga classes or they meditate, they're back into their regime. They're going back to work and you only get so much time off from work, you know, so you have to go back to work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. our culture doesn't really give grief a moment's time. What, what do we get, three to five days off at work? Depending that's, on that's who passed like, away, yeah. yeah. Well, they actually yeah. put a thing on it, like, you know, well, if it's an immediate family, it's like, well, what if you didn't get along with the immediate family and this person's more like your parent, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy what people do. But, or a it's pet. very crazy. You know, yeah. pets are family members as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that can be... I've put down six cats, and I don't want any more because, quite frankly, it's really wreaked havoc on my heart. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I don't think I can go through this again, you know? Well, Uh, you know, I (laughs) want to say something about pet love because that's – most people who have pets know something about an unconditional, simple, pure love that people who love humans, it's not the same. And the loss of a pet – is to some people equivalent to the loss of a child, especially if they're childless. And loss of mm-hmm. pets is not to be taken lightly. I have a close friend who recently told me, she's an older woman, and she had a, her, her dog of 14 years died, and she said, Claire, I wouldn't tell anybody this, but I'm sleeping at night with his favorite toy. And I said to her, of course you are. Oh, she said, you don't think that's crazy? I said, no, I don't think it's crazy at all, because people in my bereavement group often sleep with the uh, with the clothing of the, of the person they love who's died because they want to keep the scent of that person with yes. them. But what's unfortunate here, T, to me, is that these are private sharings. And I hear this in my bereavement group. I'd hear, I'll hear this. I would only say this in here to you all because you mm-hmm. will understand. And isn't that sad that these people yes. can't say what's true to them about their grief, which is so universal, except in a small bereavement group where they've formed sort of a beloved community. That breaks yeah, my heart. Yeah, they don't want to be... It does. They it don't does. want to be don't judged want to be... and criticized. Exactly. Yep. Because, we, you and know, we do that. You know, people will do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all and, about and measuring so, ourselves against these models of grief. Yeah. Of what grief yeah, looks like. Yeah, saying, oh, they're crazy for doing that. You know, somebody should do something about that. And that's not the case. This is the way they handle the grief. And, you know, everybody's going to grieve. If you've never grieved for, over anything in your life, then you might be considered lucky on the other hand. Uh, you know, maybe not, not so because sure. when it hits yeah. you, yeah, exactly. When it hits you, it's going to hit you really hard and you haven't learned, you know, you haven't learned how to, how to deal with it. And, it. and it can hit harder than, it's like people who never have failed. And then all of a sudden they feel it's devastating well, the, to them. The good thing about having known loss is that once you can tolerate your own losses and your own suffering, 
you enhance immeasurably your capacity to be with the suffering of other people. So one of the things that I hear all the time is friends I thought would be there for me have disappeared and people that were sort of strangers have come forward. Well, that is in part because the people who have disappeared don't know their way around their own heart with grief and it's scary to them and they can't withstand it. So being with your own grief is so important because it will help you be with others. That is vitally important because you need to be there. You know, something came up recently. You need to be there for the other person. And I I had a friend call me, her brother passed and he had ALS and she said she thought she was prepared. And while I, you know, I understand what she was saying. I, I very feel, I feel very yeah. strongly to make this point that no matter what the situation, even when right. a loved one is in hospice, you can never prepare for your reaction. It That's doesn't right. work That's that right. way. There's no one but you who knows what's happening within you. So surrounding yourself with loved ones, providing yourself with self-care in your way, in your time, is critical to your process and vital to your well-being. You know, no one else can or should tell you how much time you need or question what you want to do in any given moment as you process your grief or anything else for that matter, but particularly during the grieving process. And we are vulnerable to others' words, and this is not the time for anyone to do anything other than listen and support, care, and love you completely. That's the job of the rest of the world. If if that's not happening then I think you need to cut them off for the time being because they're not what you well, need in your life need to in those moments. Who can, who can be with you yes. and not let yourself yes. be mistreated by people who mean well but just don't know their way around grief. You know, yeah. it's not, I think people try to be there for one another, but a lot, like I'm doing a training next week in a guidance department because the guidance counselors have had a lot of loss in their school and they yeah. don't know what to tell the kids how to how to be what how to respond to grief so i'm making a list of ways to respond that are helpful to people a lot of people don't know how they'll say things like she's in a better place or i mean which mm. is a killer to say or uh yes um at least she's not suffering well yes but you are <laughs> you know i mean right right and people right. mean well but they just don't know how to offer their full presence. They want to make the other person feel better. And in fact, what someone who's grieving really needs is someone to be present to them in their sorrow, to allow them to be sorrowful with them. Yeah, and I I don't think we teach enough about how to process this. I think this is something that really should be taught, and it's not. Everybody just does it their own way and says those things that that can be construed as, well, that's kind of rude, you know, they're, they're in a better place. Nope. Uh, you know, as you said, they're, they're, they're not right. suffering anymore. Um, yeah. You know, and what I found was that people feel guilt. When Whenever I was in uh, pediatric hospice, I, I noticed the very first time that there was a lot of guilt in the cases that I've seen. And it it's because... Well, I sat there and I, I looked at the people in the room and the patient passed and everybody was very upset. And I, and I sat there and I thought to myself, no, this is, you know, my first time in hospice. And I'm thinking, this is hospice. We all know why we're here. Okay, let's, what's going on? I get it. Yeah. But I, it's something different. And I couldn't put my finger on, on what it was. And then it hit me. And a woman walked out of the room and she was like a, an aunt of the person. So I went out and I said, how are, how are you? And she said she was, she was doing okay. And I said, um, okay, 
I, I have to ask you, I know that you're upset, but it seems like people are shocked, but I, I think they're not shocked. And she said, oh, no, they're not shocked. And I said, do you think that they're feeling guilty? And she said, what do you mean? I said, I think people are feeling relief. And the relief that they feel is not that the person's not here anymore. It's that the person is no longer suffering. And then they feel immediate guilt because they feel relief. And they're confusing that relief with something that's not a relief that should, like, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at it going, I feel relief. Now I should feel guilty because I feel relief. It's not that kind of relief. Have you noticed that? Have you ever seen that in your work? Well, I, what I usually say is that relief is an expression of, of grief. <laughs> the person's not suffering. You know, I remember thinking to myself when my mother was dying, I remember, I remember said, I said this to a therapist I was in. I said, I can't wait for my mother to die. And she said, that's not what you should wish for. What you need to wish for is the, the ability to withstand her process. And it wasn't that I wanted my mother dead. It was that I wanted my life back. And so mm-hmm. there was a relief when she left and died because I had my life back. That was mm-hmm. part of the relief. There was also the relief of her being freed from suffering because it seemed like an interminable amount of time she was in the dying process. But I liked yeah. the the wish of, may I have the strength to endure this person's process. Because yeah, like everybody too. dies in their own way, and we can think it's better that they be dead and be out of their suffering. But that's not their journey, and we can't wish that differently for another person. We just have to witness and be present to the journey of another person. And that's what was hard for me with my mother, is yeah. to try and stay with her in that dying process. That was yeah, years ago. I, I think... I think a lot of caretakers have that same. Yes. You're a caretaker, yes. you know, yes. and it's, you're getting your life you've back. You've lost your and, life. And I you think, lose your life yeah. to the to person you're yeah. caring for. And then when and they you pass, do you it, do feel guilty. Yeah. And people do it willingly and unwillingly. I mean, I think depending on mm-hmm. the quality of the marriage or the relationship, you do it full-heartedly or you may do it half-heartedly. And there's yeah. no judgment there. That, but the caregiving is often expression of the quality of the life they had or the quality of the relationship they had. Yes. Yeah. And just, and, you know, and sometimes makes... it's just a matter of, you know, it's the right thing to do is to be there for the person and know it and be there for them to help them because who else is going to help them in those moments? You know, you can't have somebody there 24 hours a day necessarily. So while you're there, be there, be fully present, you know, give it yeah. your all because it's not going to take forever. Yeah. You know, it's not going to right. be a long time, you know, so right. you've got to give it your all and, and put into it what you can and then just yeah, do the endure there. Yeah, and absolutely. And then, as I always say, forgive yourself for whatever you can't forgive, which is yeah. really important when someone dies to stay in a state of forgiveness because taking care of someone who's dying is really a black hole. There's no end to what you could do for the person, really. And you have to make decisions along the way that balance your needs with theirs. And invariably, mm-hmm. people say, I wish I, I, I wish I could have. You know, I would have, could have, should have. And yeah. that's a bad trip. That's a bad trip when someone's gone. We do the best we can yeah. at, at the time we're doing it. And then can we forgive ourselves for what we can't forgive? 
Yeah, and you can't go back. I mean, there's no closure at that no, point with the person who can't no find back. anything out, you know. Yeah, there's no going back. And, but the closure and I know people is who in have... self-forgiveness, really. Yes. It's, the closure is in ourselves. It doesn't require the other person, right? No. Everybody thinks it does because that's the way we've been brought up to believe that you have to have these ceremonies in order to have full closure and, and say your goodbyes, and you really don't need to do that at all. You really don't need right. that. You don't need to be there. Right. I've had people right. who say, I wasn't there. And 99 times out of 100, the person who was passing doesn't want anybody there. They will, well, I've seen it so that often too. that people will leave, yeah, and they pass. You know, they want everybody out there. They're in good spirits and everything, and, and they're talking, and the people leave and think, oh, you know, there's a turnaround. It's like, yeah, there's not a turnaround. You know, in my head, I'm thinking there's not a turnaround. They're, they're seeing what they want to see. And then the phone call comes three or four hours later, and they're like, what happened? They were talking, and it, I think that that is something, too. Most people don't want other people to see them pass. I'm sure you've seen I, yeah, that in your work. I, I've seen everything. You know, I think sometimes it's hard for a parent to die when the children are around them, and yep. yet the family wants to be there when they pass. And I think it's hard to know, and I think it's one of the reasons that having your wishes expressed in writing to your family before it gets into a, a, an acute stage is really important. It's really mm. important. I mean, having yeah. a, a, having a, a good um, sort of ethical will or whatever, I think yeah. it's really important because it doesn't. It leaves it. It leaves it no doubt to the to the family. They at least know. A lot of complications arrive in grief when someone has to make split-second decisions in the ER yes. or in intensive care, and they have no idea what the patient wanted. They have no idea, none. Right. And they have to, and then their grief becomes complicated because they don't, they're, they're second-guessing themselves. They don't know whether or not they made the right decision. And right. that can really plague someone who's grieving. Did I kill the person by not by pulling the plug? What would they have wanted? You know, it's hard. So I think one of the biggest gifts we can give our loved ones is to let them know how we want to be taken care of in a variety of circumstances as we get older. You know, it's funny because I've had a number of people say to me, it's really not funny, but I have to laugh at it. They've said to me, will you be the person that makes a decision because I know you'll pull the plug. And I'm like, I don't, is that a compliment or what? I mean, am I vicious? What, what are you saying to me? You know, and they're saying, you won't let me suffer. I know you would say pull the plug and you could go through with it. And they're right. Well, a lot of people can't say that. Say that. Yeah. You know, yeah, a lot of people can't pull the plug because it, it yeah. raises a lot of issues for them religiously, ethically, you know. And if you don't have express permission from someone to do that, that's pretty tough. Yeah. I just got people have said it in writing. Said, I, yeah. They're like, T, you have the guts to do it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not the one that would do it unless, you know, you did put it in writing where, where I had that decision. You know, you need a living will. Yeah, you've got to and have permission. Yeah, you have to have permission. But they know that if someone said to me, you know, this is what I want, if that's really what you want, I'll make sure it happens because that's what you want. It's not fair to do what I want. It's not what you want. You have to do what the person wants, but they have to get it in writing. And I, I don't see that there would be guilt going along with it if you can just look at it and say you're giving them what they want. If this is their last dying wish to, to let me, you know, make sure everybody goes home, 
you know, every single day at five o'clock or whatever, and whatever it is, you know, I want everybody out of the room, then everybody's out of the room, you know, it's, but it's hard. It's hard for people to do that in the moment. That's why doing it ahead of time, as you said, is probably the best way to go because, you know, you might laugh about it and say, yeah, okay, that's going to happen. Or yeah, I can't do that. Well, if you know your kids and you know which ones can't do it, you pick the one that you know can do it, not out of hatred, not to be vicious, not to be mean, but because they love you enough to want you to have what you want. Well, that's it's it's loving them enough to give you what what you want and not what they think you should have, exactly. and that's where families Honoring their break wishes. down. That's yes, where families in a break very down. Big you way. know, Ellen Goodman, um, who's a, I don't know whether you know her. She was a Pulitzer Prize columnist, and she wrote for the Boston Globe, and she she started a program called the Conversation Project, which is inviting people to have the conversation about death and dying. Well, they can, and she's what one of the things that she says is about those conversations is it's always too early until it's too late, and yeah. I love that. I mean, that just says it right there. It's always too early. It until really it's does, too yeah. Late. Right? Yeah, because people, don't, everybody thinks we're, you know we're not going to go anytime soon. You know, you yeah. just don't know. I clear. You have to plan yeah. ahead. It's like. It's like it's yeah. like buying life insurance, you know, you have to do that as well. Um, I did want uh, to talk about one thing at the beginning in the front of your book, Opening to Grief. There is a section called Note from the Authors, and that note starts with a quote by W.S. Merwin, and it reads, On the last day of the world, I would mm-hmm. want to plant a tree. I mm-hmm. love that. It is so beautiful. I find it to be so very poignant. It's a sign of faith. Yeah. It says we know life does and That's will right. go on. and. Yeah, I just, I really, really, yeah, I loved that. I just, I I had to stop there and read it like over and over. Yeah. You know, that's from a poem of his. It's an excerpt from a mm -hmm. a line from one of his poems. Yep. You might want to take a look at that poem. I did take a look at it. I read this a while ago, so I don't remember it, but I did take a look at it, and I was like, those were the perfect words to pull out to put in your book because it's just. Thank you. Yeah. I love yeah. that. And then the other thing that I liked in the same so glad. the same note from the authors was the final paragraph. And, and that reads, we've seen how grief and love are intertwined. We grieve because we love. And we transform suffering and get through adversity by loving and helping each other. And as we find ways to stay present, do what is right, persist against odds, we become like the poet W.S. Merwin and choose to plant a tree no matter what. That was beautiful, too. So yeah. you tied it at the beginning. You tied it up at the end. I just loved it. I just, I just loved it. It was uh, great. <laughs> thank you so much. That's so nice. I, I, appreciate your, your, I appreciate your appreciating the book because I think you really grasped the essence of it. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, and I don't think you yeah. have to be somebody who, who has worked in hospice or anything to get it. I think your book is, first of all, it's only 100 pages, so it's a short read, it's a quick read, it's a good read, and it's not uh, sorrowful, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to cause No, it's actually uplifting, it's very, if anything. Yes. yes. You know, I, I wanted it, to say it, something, that one of the things that mm-hmm. people said, which was uh, one of, a lot of the people who endorsed the book described the book as a companion. And I loved that they did that because Marnie and I wanted people, when they read the book, to feel less alone. We wanted them to know that they were w- walking a path that many other people knew and that they weren't alone doing that. And so the, the idea of it being a companion to people in, in grief, uh, in, who are grieving, 
just it hit it hit right what we wanted. We didn't want it to be a self-help book. We didn't want it to be an advice book. We just wanted it to be a companion to people. It so. is. It so very much is, you know, because I think if you have – anybody who reads this can relate to certain parts of it and be you'll shake your head and nod in agreement or shake your head and go, oh, my gosh, yeah, that happened to me or whatever. It's not a sad book, but it's – it is something that can help you through any type of grief, not just the loss of a loved one, oh, but any right. type that, of grief. That's right. It's for any any type of loss that we have, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you all. appreciate that. I'm so glad you I appreciate do, that. I do, you know, um, and I yeah. like books that are short and succinct, you know, so it doesn't go on and on and on. It's just you tell it like it is, and it's straightforward, and, and you get it. Well, as a reader, book you get it. It needs to be simple. It needs to be simple because people don't have concentration when they're grieving. No. That's one of the that's one of no. the things. Focus gets lost really easily. That's probably why people should go out and buy this book now, Opening to Grief, because if you get the book now and read it, as much as you can't be prepared, you'll know where to go, what resource you have in your home, if, <laughs> in fact, or when you do need it. So it, it's a good resource to have, and if you've read it once, you'll have more you know, of an idea of this is what I need to, to read. This is going to help yeah. me get through this process because it's very, yeah, it's, it's chock full of information that's very, very good. So before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they can learn more about you, your work, and where they can purchase your book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace? Well, you can order the book at any independent bookstore. Also, it's on Amazon, but I try to ask people to go to their local bookstore because I like to support bookstores. But Amazon yep. uh, uh, has it, and if you if you read it and you like it, please write a review on Amazon. If you don't like it, write me. <laughs> um, the other thing <laughs> is that you can get more information on the book at opening uh, openingtogrief.com. That's my website. And that has everything you would want on it. That you can see blog and resources and just a bunch of things yeah. there. So there's a ton of information on that site. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah. Can you, now I don't remember. Can you buy the book through your site? Um, I don't think so. You can buy it through the publisher, okay. Redville Wiser, okay. if you want. But yep. the easiest way to get but, it is to, if you can, if you have a local bookstore, is just to get it there. Yep. And. Um, or yeah, support Amazon. those people because the last year has been tough for a lot of businesses. And I'm oh, sure that's one it's of them been really tough, just but Am- Amazon. and Amazon's yeah. made out like a bandit in the last year. Ben, exactly. So, yeah. um, yep. you know, let's, let's keep our bookstores alive if we yeah, can. Yeah, it's important that we do that. So the, one yes. of the good things, now that you bring that up, one of the good things that came out of COVID, I noticed, is that more and more people are creating book nooks in their homes. I can't tell you how thrilled I was to hear that because I have books book all over nook? the place and I have – a book nook is like a little bench with books on either side of it where you go and you read. It's your own little space. And people oh. are creating book nooks in their homes. And I'm like, what a great idea. They did it during COVID. I think it will That's keep That's a great idea. Because it, right. Isn't it? It is a yeah. great idea. I was thrilled. And I thought, oh, good. Let's keep books alive. Because as soon as the Kindle readers and everything came out, I thought, oh, no, we're going to get rid of books. We can't do that. I like the feel of a book. I want to feel a book. And, and I do. And, you know, you know this that's book is beautiful. And it's small. And it just, is. It sits in your hand, and I I, and did, I can't take cover. credit for that. That was the publisher, but he did a beautiful job. <laughs> they did, and the and the paper, the cover paper is so satiny smooth. You just want to hold. Isn't that beautiful? It. You just it's yeah. not rough. It is. It really is. It's terrific. So okay, yeah, no, thank you so much, job. Claire. I really appreciate you being oh, on the show. It was Keith, great. thanks for hold. Thanks for having hold me. Hold on while I. Oh, I, I I'm really glad I did. Hold on while I do the outro, and I'll meet you in the green room. 
Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and constantly changing world. That's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live, productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So please share the knowledge, joy, and love by sending the link for this show that you just heard to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for everyone. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. My name is T-Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me and my work or to schedule a remote energy therapy session of your choice, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need 100%. We're run solely by volunteers. There are no salaries, stipends, or compensation of any kind to anyone. And we're excited because we've just started a new initiative, Childhood and Adolescent Mental Health. So please be sure to go to SojiHuggles.org to learn more about that and see how in just 35 seconds of your time you can help us help kids who need it most. At Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. So thank you for taking time to visit our website, SojiHuggles.org. Please also follow us on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio and at Soji Huggles. While you're in your social media accounts, go ahead. Be sure to like us on Facebook, Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most enjoyable week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. I got a heart.